0: A few years ago, uh, was, he, was he a Swiss guy, Felix Baumgartner, jumped off a balloon, basically a hot air balloon, sort of, not hot air, but a balloon that took him so far up that as he looked out, the, the earth was like a ball. He could see literally the, the kind of the whole globe of the earth, and he jumped for the highest free fall uh, ever. If you saw that video, it, it's really breathtaking, isn't it, to have that perspective and then, excuse me, he hurtles towards the earth and eventually uh, parachute works and he lands and understandably kisses the ground. But that change in perspective from being so many miles up in the sky to being on earth is a major, major shift. And what we find often as we're in the Bible is that the Bible can give us this perspective from high up there, from eternity past to eternity future, God's big picture, God's big plan. And yet, the majority of the Bible is right down here on earth. Real people in real circumstances facing real trials with all sorts of questions. The kind of lives that we live. And so what we've been doing for the past few weeks is looking in the book of Ruth. And the vast majority of the book of Ruth is right down here in normal world. It's normal people. They're not powerful or uh, kind of super significant. They're just normal people facing normal challenges and by normal challenges, I don't mean just uh, easy challenges like, oh, I can't find my keys kind of challenges. I mean the normal challenges that we face in terms of death, in terms of separation, in terms of loss, the, the real tough things that are actually incredibly normal in life. And they're facing these normal circumstances under a, a kind of a context that's normal in the sense that God doesn't seem to be stepping in. And actually, as we read through the Bible, there are moments where God does these big, sensational, miraculous things. But normal, even in Bible times, isn't that. And certainly normal in our experience isn't that. And so, as we look at the lives of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, these three characters, really what we're seeing is kind of the concrete, foot-on-the-ground kind of reality that we live in, And even though it's three, three and a half thousand years ago, it it can speak to us because the same God who is at work in Ruth is at work today. And so Ruth really is not so much about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz as it is about God. But actually, it doesn't say much about God. It doesn't say much about him kind of stepping in and doing stuff. There's only two places in the entire book where we read that God does something. But as you read it through, you get a sense that God's at work here. Even when the book itself is giving credit to luck and chance, it's really God who is at work. And so the book of Ruth is really the story of a journey. It's the journey of Naomi. Naomi was the wife of a man called Elimelech. She had two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And in the first few verses, we're just given this kind of list of of terrible circumstances for Naomi. She moved from the promised land, from Bethlehem, to the place called Moab, Uh, which is questionable to start with. When she gets there, her husband dies, and then her sons die, and she's left with these two daughters-in-law, Moabite daughters-in-law. It's kind of a a worst-case scenario. And so the book begins with her in that place, uh, emotionally, as she's coming back to the land. One of the daughters-in-law stays in Moab. Ruth travels with her, and as she comes back to the land, all she can muster about God is that God is... God. He's in charge. He's gone forth against me. He's dealt bitterly with me. My circumstances prove that that God is in charge, but nothing more than that. She certainly can't say that God is good at that point. And really, the book of Ruth is her journey from God is God to ultimately God is good. And that's the journey that we're all on. We're on it in small ways. Sometimes we kind of have a little wobble and we struggle and, and think that God's somehow distant and uninvolved and, and God can draw us back and reassure us of his love. But also we're on that journey through our whole lives. We're born into the world assuming that if there is a God, he certainly isn't good. And if he is God, he's not a uh, good. He's not good to me. And it's through life and through the complex Uh, nitty-gritty details of life that God is at work to woo us to Himself, to draw us to Him, to, to, to help us to understand that He is God, yes, and He is good, and He is good toward us, that He loves us, that He values us, that He knows us by name, and that we're precious in His eyes. And so the story of Naomi's journey is, in a way, the story of our journey too. For Naomi, there were two particular issues uh, there was the immediate issue of she needed someone to provide for her. Uh, husband was dead, sons were gone. How was she going to eat? In that culture, she was really in trouble. So uh, the, the issue of provision was kind of the immediate reality. And then the issue of purpose. What's my purpose for existing? In that culture, for her, her purpose, she would have said, is to be a support to my husband and then to raise up sons so that the family line can continue. And she'd been a support to her husband and she'd raised up sons and they'd all died. And now as a slightly older woman, she's faced with this sense of my purpose is unfulfilled and there's nothing I can do about it. And so you've got the the big macro kind of uh, idea of wanting to have a life that matters and also the immediate idea of my stomach's hurting because there isn't enough food in it. And so in chapter 2, the focus was on the food. And on chapter 3, the focus shifted to the possibility uh, of a a marriage between Ruth and a relative of Naomi's husband. We thought in chapter 2 about how, uh, for us, give us this day our daily bread It's kind of a bit of a lame prayer. We've got in our freezer this month's daily bread. We've got easy access to food. The only time I've ever really appreciated daily bread, I think, was when I was in Kenya a few years ago. Uh, And in Kenya, the meals, I could go into detail, but uh, I won't bother, but the meals were hit and miss. There was one real hit, one that was tolerable, and two I prefer to miss. That was lunchtime. Breakfast time, I was starving. And at breakfast time, uh, there was a loaf of bread and some jam. Perfect, right? Loaf of bread and some jam. First morning, I take out a slice of bread and there's a black bit on it. And that's fine until you stretch the black bit and it's the wing of a moth that's baked into your bread. And I don't, you know, forgive me for being really English, but I was like, oh, that's gross. And so I I couldn't eat it. And suddenly I was praying, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, where am I going to get food from? I'm desperate here. But I wasn't desperate. That was silly. It was just one meal. For some people, having anything would be absolutely wonderful. And with moths, that would be added protein, wouldn't it? You see, it's a challenge for us to not be complacent with the food that we have. For Naomi, uh, she sat at home hoping and praying that maybe God would be good to her that day as Ruth went out and her chance chanced upon, that's how it's put in the Hebrew, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's. And Boaz is this godly guy in an ungodly culture who just lavished goodness and grace on Ruth. He poured out so much food. That by the time she staggered home at the end of the day with all this food, Naomi's blown away and her perspective is already starting to shift. In fact, her perspective starts to shift so much, she starts to kind of think, I can help things along here. And so in chapter 3, Naomi's got this great plan to help Boaz realize that there's a girl here he could marry. And he's a little bit older, he may be Naomi's generation probably, and so uh, Here's Ruth, this beautiful young widow, and he's thinking, well, she's a widow, she's young. He's not thinking. And lots of you ladies know about this, where men don't seem to twig, that there's an opportunity. And so Naomi wants to stir things up and move things along. And she comes up with, frankly, a ridiculous idea. Wait till he's drunk, and then go and lie at his feet in the middle of the night. Really stupid, really dangerous, really risky. And maybe in her mind she was thinking, worst case, if something happens, he's obligated. But you go through chapter 3 and you discover that Boaz and Ruth are unusually godly people. And he guards and protects and cares for her and honors her and says, I'm going to get this taken care of. And he protects her reputation. And we come into chapter 4 expecting wedding bells. But life isn't always that simple, is it? It doesn't just go problem solved, solved, hurrah. Life tends to have turns in the road. Moments where you think, oh, things are going well, and then suddenly the phone rings. And suddenly things have changed. Or you wake up on the morning of, of the, you know, the thing that you've got to do that's really significant, the interview, the performance, whatever it is. And you wake up and, and you've got some illness or something, and you just go, oh, why today of all days? And so life kind of has a habit of doing that. And in chapter 4, we're facing one of those little curves in the road because Boaz, although he's a relative... He's not the nearest relative. There's somebody else who's closer and the somebody else could if he chooses to have the right to marry Ruth and redeem the land and be the hero and Boaz who's starting to get his hopes up could miss out. So let's look at what happens in chapter 4. This is camera zoomed in right down on earth. By the end of the chapter it's going to zoom right out and we're going to get the big perspective again. So Ruth 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Notice we're not even one verse into the chapter. And God is at work. I mean, Bethlehem, few hundred people, it's possible to miss people, you know. It's not, life doesn't always happen that way, that when you need to meet someone, they're right there. But before the verse even finishes, Mr. Redeemer, the guy who's got the rights to marry Ruth and take the land, he walks past. One of the goals of this series has been to say, let's pray that our radar beeps a little bit more frequently, that our eyes can see a little bit more clearly so that we can spot when God is at work in our lives. Because when it's not sensational, we can miss moments like this, moments when you need something and you you say, oh, Lord, I'd love this to work out. And, And it does. Sometimes it's as insignificant as meeting someone at the right time. Sometimes it's as insignificant as finding a parking space. But Ruth kind of energizes our our eyes and our hearts to see where God is at work. I was at a conference a few years ago, just at the side here, but I needed to see someone. There was 800 people at this conference staying in five hotels, and it was a bit manic. And for about three days, I was frantically kind of trying to find this person. And then I realized, this is really stupid. If God wants me to see this person, he can orchestrate it. So I just prayed and said, Lord, I'd love to, to, to see this guy. Would you work it out? I walked down to breakfast, came up to a table. There was one spare seat. I said, excuse me, is this seat spare? I sat down, and there was the guy who I was trying to see. I just sat down next to him. I just, my chance chanced upon his chair sitting right next to him, the only spare seat at the table. See, we need to have eyes to see how God is at work, even in the most minute details. Anyway, let me get back to the reading. Uh, and so Boaz said, turn aside, friend. sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So this is all very formal, right? You've got elders sitting down at the gate. This is kind of a legal moment now. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say... Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. That's disappointing, isn't it? Mr. Unknown, he's not named, he's called literally Mr. So-and-so. Now he says he's going to redeem the land. That, that's one of those moments in life where you go, hang on a minute, it's not supposed to work this way. How many times have we prayed prayers and said, okay, Lord, we need, I need you to do this. Just this way, A, B, C, D. It's simple, I'm trusting you and I'm praying in Jesus' name so it's gotta work, amen. And then we go A, B, D, and you go, what, what's the D? And then there's like an F and then there's an X and you're like, well, hang on a second, what about C and D, God? You, you're forgetting that I know best. You're forgetting that I've got the big picture. Well, of course I haven't got the big picture. That's ridiculous, isn't it? But we do it. I do it. I anticipate things. I pray for things, and then they go wrong. And my first thought is God's made a mistake. If God had listened to my prayer more carefully, he could have worked this out. Maybe we're too hasty with that kind of judgment. Let's keep reading. Um, Where did he say? Verse... Four. Right. So, verse five. Then Boaz said, "Oh, P.S. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." Then the redeemer said, "I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it." Ah, oh, Amen. That's a quick resolution. I think Boaz is being deliberate here. If he'd have said about Ruth first and then promised land, the guy might have said, you know what, I can figure out a way to make the Ruth thing work. I need the land. But once he's got his hopes up about the land and then he discovers that he's going to have to raise other children and those children aren't going to be his children and the land that he's farmed is going to go to not just his children but Ruth's children, it's going to divide his inheritance. Suddenly it gets really complex and he backs away. It's almost like bureaucracy, isn't it? The complexity of this moment here—you've got to do A, you know, B, C, fill in this form and this form, and then things go wrong. And I don't know about you, but the thing that winds me up more than anything is when I'm dealing with officials and paperwork and people that are un- unseen. You know, you kind of—that's the way it is these days. You apply for something and then you don't get it or you don't hear back. God is even sovereign in those situations. God is in charge and able to work out the details. I remember coming through Kyrgyzstan, uh, through the airport during the revolution. I was trying to get out of the country. uh, And there was this revolution going on. So the security was crazy. Everyone was touchy. And as my suitcase uh, went through the x-ray machine, I was confused. Because you don't x-ray suitcases in England, do you? You x-ray hand luggage and your suitcase is done somewhere else. But there they had the x-ray machine before check-in. And in my suitcase, I had all the papers from this conference that I probably shouldn't have had in the, in the suitcase. And I put the suitcase through, and they said, uh, is this your bag? And I said, yeah, open the bag. And so I took my time, put on my belt as slow as I could. My watch was really tricky that day. And the guy walked off, and I thought, thank you, Lord. That's an answer to prayer. And just as I went to go, he said, open the bag. So I opened the bag and he rifled through it and went past all those papers. My heart almost stopped in my chest, all the papers that probably could have got people in trouble. And then he found my Bible. And he says, is this yours? I said, yes. And he starts waving my Bible around and then announcing to the whole airport, Bibliski, Bibliski. And I'm like, ooh, that's frightening. I said, do you want it? He said, no, 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 no. He put it back, closed the bag and I was off. But, but it was a moment of bureaucracy where I was completely out of control. And if he had made a thing of it, I couldn't have done anything about it. But I may have been out of control, but God wasn't. And That's the thing. God is in charge, even of bureaucracy and, and the practical kind of nitty-gritty details of life, like you know, organizing weddings at city gates. And God is in charge. And while it may seem to turn sour, go south, go pear-shaped for a while, he knows what he's doing. And so the story goes on. There's an explanation, verse 7. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Seems a bit weird to us, but that's okay. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. That's her two sons. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Legalities are done. And the people's response is is beautiful here. Verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's, it's amazing. In a very ungodly culture, these people are struck by the godliness of Boaz. In that moment when he announces and says, You're witnesses. I'm going to do this and this for the, for the name of the dead. I think they're struck by his godliness and his character. And they pour out blessing upon him. Blessing from the Lord. Blessing that the woman coming into his house would be fruitful. Remember the story of of Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives? Ultimately, Jacob ended up with 12 sons and a daughter, so he did okay. But to begin with, Rachel and Leah had all sorts of complexities, right? Right? Rachel couldn't have children, Leah could. And then when Leah stopped, uh, you know, they brought in their handmaids and it got all very messy and end up with six children from Leah and two from Rachel. But, but there was lots of back and forth complexity to that. When you go down a generation, Judah is the, the key one out of the 12. There's, he was the fourth, there's Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Then comes Judah. And Judah's the one in the line of promise, the line that's going to lead ultimately to the Messiah. And in Genesis 38, Judah heads off. He leaves the land. And as he's leaving the land, you're kind of going, where is he going? Oi, sunshine, come back. You you belong here. And instead, he goes off. And the story of Judah and his offspring is kind of gross. He ends up in the situation where Tamar uh, is not prepared to wait uh, he's got, had two sons, and they've both kind of gone the wrong way. And so the third son's called Sheila, which is confusing, but it obviously wasn't then. And Sheila's really young, and Tamar's not going to wait for Sheila to grow up, you know, in order to have children, uh, because it's going to take too long. Uh, but Judah is kind of withholding, and there's this kind of tension, and she's godly, Tamar. She's kind of trusting God to do the right thing, and, and Judah doesn't do the right thing. And so she doesn't do the right thing. In order to do the right thing, it's all very complex, but ultimately she has children, Perez. And Perez is the first after Judah in the line that's got to lead all the way down to a king. So you've got Rachel and Leah, Tamar, Perez, foreign women, dodgy circumstances, complex birth or lack of birth. And now they're saying to Boaz, may the woman that comes into your home be blessed of God. You know, there is another complexity here that we could skip over very easily. She was married to Malon. And it was potentially a marriage of up to 10 years. They had no children. There's no way that we can think in our minds or that we should think in our minds man and wife equals children nine months later. Too many of us know that it doesn't always work that way. And all through the Bible, there's so many examples of where it doesn't work that way. And so their blessing is really saying, may God do that, because there's no guarantees. Let's read on and see what happens. Verses 13 and following, we get a kind of wrap-up to the story. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Isn't that interesting? Maybe years of marriage, nothing. First time. That's the way it reads, first time she bore a son. That's the second time that God is seen directly intervening in the book of Ruth. The first time is in chapter 1, verse 6, where Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people and the famine was over and there is food in Bethlehem. And here at the other end of the book, the Lord grants conception and she bears a son. Isn't that great? The two big themes of the book. And as you go through the kind of the meat of the book, chapters two and three, God just seems so, sort of invisible. He's not there. Or is he? He's at work. Even though it's not obvious, he's at work. And it's only as we look at the beginning and the end that we realize yes, God does care about food and God does care about offspring. He is involved in the big issues of Naomi's. Life and Ruth's too. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. There's a redeemer. She's not left without someone to buy back the land and to raise up descendants for her deceased family members. There is a redeemer. And who is that redeemer? the kinsman redeemer of the book of Ruth, before you say Boaz, look at the next verse. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. All the way through the book. There's this anticipation of, we need a kinsman redeemer. We need a kinsman redeemer. And then Boaz, he's the kinsman redeemer. And you get to the end and you realize, no, it's not Boaz. It's the son. God's got a plan. Even before the person exists, God has a plan. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. There's two things that feel slightly harsh in that moment. One is the name Obed, because I don't think any of us would choose that. But the other thing is that, hang on a minute, who just gave birth to a son? Ruth. Like, like Ruth was the one, you know, squeezing hands and veins bulging and sweating and shouting and doing all those things that women do in birth. And, you know, all the people involved would say, wow, respect to Ruth. Fair play. Impressive. I've, I've watched that six times. It's impressive. And then the women of the town come along, give the baby to somebody else and say, God's given her a son. It does seem a little bit unfair to Ruth, doesn't it? But I don't think Ruth was really complaining because this is life's purpose coming together. She'd been drawn in to this family line. She's a Moabitess and now she's in Bethlehem giving birth to a son. And I think the joy on Naomi's face would have warmed Ruth's heart in this moment. Naomi went away and she came back empty. Now she's sitting there holding this little boy and she's full. She's filled up. And there's no question in her mind that God is not only God, but God is good. And she doesn't even know the half of it. The rest of the book tells us the bigger picture. This is where the helicopter zooms out and we get the, the kind of the higher up view. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then just to make sure you don't miss it, now these are the generations of Perez. It goes right the way back into Genesis, hundreds of years before. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon is a significant military leader in the book of Numbers. That's halfway down the line. Let's keep going. Nashon fathered Salmon. I always say that, but his name is clearly Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That's a lot of history. That's like almost a 1,000 years of history summarized. Uh, This skips a little bit. It doesn't include every generation, but it summarizes the history from the time of the patriarchs, the first one after Judah, right the way down to King David. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? And Ruth had no idea. Naomi had no idea. Boaz had no idea. All they saw was the complexity of each circumstance. The unknown answers to questions that they might pray or not even bother praying. They spent a lot of their time on the very steep back slope of a question mark, wondering, where is this all going? Is God in charge? And if he is, is he good? Can I trust him? And God proves himself. But I want you to notice that the way God proves himself is subtle. He's at work in the smallest little details where Ruth's chance chanced upon where Mr. So-and-so just happened to walk by at the right moment. God is at work in the little details. God is good. That's the the big lesson of the Bible that it's so hard for us to grasp, but it's the truth that we need to be gripped by. God is good. Uh, Let me just mention four things as we finish up Ruth about God's goodness. Number one, God is good, but it is not always sensational. God does perform miracles. God does heal. God does provide in ways that we never anticipate. God does do things that absolutely blow us away. But there's an awful lot of times where God's goodness is not sensational. In fact, number two, God's goodness is not even always noticed. Even where it's at work, there are times when we will not be able to see God's goodness toward us. Sometimes the clouds are just too dark around us sometimes it just seems to be closing in too much and there may be times where other people need to spot God's goodness for us because we may not even notice the goodness of God towards us so it's not uh, always sensational it's not even always noticed Uh, but also notice through the book of Ruth that God is good even when times are tough Even when there's death and loss and bereavement and and questions and doubt and hunger. Even when prayers aren't answered, apparently. Even when things don't seem to be going in the right direction. God's goodness continues. It is still the same. But we struggle, don't we? And there will be times when we struggle. There will be times where we say, I don't know if God's good. I thought he was. I'm I'm not sure now. And in the perspective that we have with our feet firmly planted on terra firma, we don't have the big picture. We don't have the huge perspective from high up, miles above the earth or miles above history. And there'll be lots of times where we don't get what's going on and things just go from bad to worse. But the fact is God is good and the Bible wants to convince us of that. The spirit of God wants to pour out the love of God into our hearts to convince us of that so that when the times are tough and the days are dark and we're not sure what's gonna happen or how things are gonna work out, that even with just the weakest little hint of faith, we can say, but I know God's good and I'm trusting him. And there'll be times where our grip on him is so weak and it will only be in hindsight that we discover that his grip on us was absolutely solid. So his goodness is not always sensational. It's not even always noticed. God's goodness is persistent even in the tough times. And then also uh, there's that sense that his scope is so much bigger than ours. That his goodness is at work in ways that we cannot see from where we're standing. Just think about it from Ruth's perspective. From Naomi's perspective, even Boaz's perspective, they could not see beyond their circumstances, beyond the harvest, beyond the the birth of a child. But God could see from the birth of Perez back in Genesis 38, right the way through to the birth of David, God could see and he had a plan. And so when Naomi's taken to a foreign land and everything goes wrong and, and, and she's just like, what in the world's going on? God is just dealing bitterly with me. God had a plan. And maybe she had to go there. Maybe she had to go through that for Ruth to see Naomi's faith being tested and to see something about it that was real so that Ruth would be drawn to her, so that Ruth, this foreigner, would be brought back to Bethlehem so that Ruth could be in the line of David. Maybe that was God's plan. And they had no clue about that. Uh, The book of Ruth has a, a big picture scope of kind of 10 generations. But we have the whole Bible And with the whole Bible, what is it we find? We find that several, uh, many centuries later, in those very fields, there were some shepherds minding their business in the darkness one night when all of a sudden there was a host of angels around them with a message from heaven to tell them that there is good news, that, 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 that Christ, the Messiah, had been born, a savior for you, born in the city of David. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find him wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And, they sing, and they're singing the praises of God and the shepherds. You can just imagine them like, oh, I didn't expect this tonight. You know, they're getting this glimpse of eternity breaking in. And maybe they were sat in Boaz's field when that message came. Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe they were sat right there where Boaz had said, make sure you leave extra grain for Ruth, unaware of what the future held. And then they went into the town and they came to the the place where the baby boy was laid in a manger and they worshipped. Because God's plan for a saviour it's not dependent on everybody getting it, and it's not dependent on everybody doing their part and obeying and getting everything perfect. It's a plan that's kind of messy from human perspective. A plan that when Matthew begins to describe it, he can't help but include in that list of names, father, son, father, son, father, son, and then he introduces some women. Tamar. Oof, she was a bit, a bit dodgy. Genesis 38. And then who else? Rahab. She had a reputation. She was a prostitute. And then uh, Ruth. She probably could have had a reputation if Boaz hadn't protected her. There's certainly a question mark over what she did in chapter 3. Do not try this at home uh, or any, you know, threshing floors. Uh, And then Bathsheba, Mrs. Uriah's mentioned, caught up in an illicit affair with King David himself. And all the way down through the line leading to the Messiah, there's mess. And there's foreigners, and it's God's purpose to bring that all together so that when Jesus came and when Jesus was born, he was able to be the savior of all people, Moabites, Hittites, Jews, Americans, English. He was able to be the savior of people who don't have it all together, people whose lives are a mess, either because of sin or just circumstance, whatever, people like you and people like me. And Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, they had no idea. But they were part of that. Part of God's plan being worked out so that we can sit here and sing songs about the Redeemer who is Jesus, our Lord. Isn't it amazing? In effect, what we need to do, and this is what we try to do every Sunday as we worship, as we look at the Bible, even when we're dealing with the kind of uh, rubber meets the road sections of scripture, we want to zoom up and we want to see the big picture and remind ourselves that God is in charge and his in-chargeness is good. He's good, 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 always good, and his goodness is toward us. And we may be down here in the complexities of life with all sorts of uncertainties, but God's goodness persists. It always has and it always will. And in the end, it will be proven to be good. In the end, nobody will be able to say to God, yeah, but you, causing God to say, yeah, you're right, I'm sorry. He'll never say sorry. He'll never need to. Because even the harsh, difficult, complex things in life, he will have woven together and redeemed so that by the end, we will be falling on our faces before him in worship saying, I couldn't see it at the time, but you knew what you were doing. And you do all things well. And you're good, God. You're good. Not just good in general, but good to me. And I worship you. We'll worship him forever. And if that was true for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz being part of the line of Christ, what's his plan with us? What's his purpose for us and the impact we have on on others and on other generations and on the future? We have no idea. But if the Bible's anything to go by, we can trust him now even though we can't see where it heads, even though we don't see the big picture, we can trust him because he does. And he's working it out and he's working it out well. That's the book of Ruth. May we be a church of people who have a a, a sensitized inner radar to see God's goodness, even in the non-sensational ways. And may we be a church that trusts in his goodness, even when the days are dark. Let's pray. Father, we, we sit here and uh, reflect even on our own lives. The, uh, sometimes it's the smallest things that seem to throw us off. And at the same time, we know that there are those amongst us and there probably all of us at different times will face the really big things too. And we don't know how it's all gonna work out. We don't even know how you're gonna answer our prayers today, let alone for the next 10 years. But Lord, we wanna tell you that we love you and we trust you and we know that you're good and we know this ultimately not because of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and King David. We know it ultimately because of the cross. And so as we move into a time of communion, would you lift our hearts to have the ultimate perspective that can only come from seeing your son dying in our place on the cross. By your spirit, would you stir our hearts with love for Jesus and would you fill our hearts with faith in your goodness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.